The Forum on Workplace Inclusion's 2021 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion's 2022 call for proposals is now open. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion is excited to announce the opening of the call for proposals for our 2022 program year, including our 34th annual conference, Solving for X, tackling inequity in a world of unknowns. Addressing complex challenges can be daunting, especially when the foundations of our structures are shifting. As we look to a future of continuous and unforeseeable change, what must we do to tackle systemic inequities deeply embedded in our everyday environments and unharness inclusive, equitable, and sustainable ways of working? We invite you to submit a proposal to be part of the upcoming program year and to help us solve for X. The submission deadline is Monday, August 16th, 2021 at 11.59 p.m. Central. Learn more at forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash CFP. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash CFP. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast series brought to you by Best Buy. I'm Ben Rue, Program Associate here at the Forum. We're looking forward to today's podcast, The Future of Domestic Terrorism on the Workplace, Identifying Risks, Protecting Employees, and How DNI Professionals Can Recognize Potential Threats with Zaylor Stout of Zaylor Stout and Associates, LLC, and Jim Potts of Jim Potts and Associates. The world is changing. Communication and technology are bringing our shores closer together. The internet provides an opportunity for violent extremists to reach out all over the world to present their ideologies to anyone willing to listen. Individuals, including children and young adults, are being radicalized, which in turn translates into domestic terrorism. The Oklahoma City bombing, Columbine, Pulse nightclubs, Stoneman Douglas, the U.S. Capitol, mall shootings, and places of faith being attacked are all examples of historical events that will be addressed along with statistics while highlighting the detrimental impact of women versus men and hate groups by state on workplaces across the country. Understanding why people lash out violently in the workplace is the first step HR and DNI professionals can take towards mitigating risk factors that may materialize in the workplace. In this podcast, you'll learn how to identify eight factors giving rise to domestic terrorism in the workplace, conduct your own site assessment for potential risk factors, and develop and execute a federally mandated workplace security plan. Zaylor Stout was raised in Southern California and received his bachelor's from California State Fullerton in International Business Management. He graduated from the University of St. Thomas School of Law in 2010 and founded his own law firm, Zaylor Stout & Associates. 
which handles employment law matters, which includes sexual harassment, discrimination, wrongful termination, and wage and hour disputes. ZSA is the first LGBTQ certified law firm in the state of Minnesota through the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce at NGLCC. The firm also holds disability and minority-owned business certifications. Zaylor serves on the board of directors of Quorum, Fair Vote Minnesota, and previously served as a board member for Reclaim and the Minnesota Center for Book Arts. Zaylor recently published his first book titled Our Gay History in 50 States, which highlights significant people, places, and queer facts relating to LGBTQIA history in the state on a state-by-state basis. Zaylor is sought after as a guest speaker across the country and has presented at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion Conference or through our podcast for the past three years. Jim Potts had an approximately 20 years in law enforcement, including working as a terrorist investigator. Since 2010, he has created violence in the workplace programs that have included conducting site assessments, writing workplace security plans, procedures and protocols for workplace events, and active shooter training. His team members include prior law enforcement and military backgrounds. Jim's weekly radio show, Listen Up with Jim Potts, consists of everything from a historical perspective on domestic terrorism up to and including current events. Jim also discusses everyday workplace-related issues that are creating nightmares for the work environment by managers and employees. This could include handling conflict, hostile work environment, and hiring and firing practices. He founded Potts & Associates, a broad-based employment consulting firm practiced in unemployment, cost control, human resources management, manager and supervisor training, and other critical labor relations areas over 30 years ago. Jim is a native of New York who earned a bachelor's degree in history from California State University at Los Angeles and a Juris Doctorate from the University of West Los Angeles Law School. Well, thanks so much for having us. I'm super excited to do this training session with my stepfather, Jim Potts. So you have a father-son duo here, uh, focusing on the impact of domestic terrorism in the workplace. Uh, So let's just jump right into it. You know, um, we here in the United States, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, we love going out and being social going to the gym, going to the mall, our places of worship, um, going to the movies. And that has not been um, the case over the last year, given the pandemic. And so, um, you know, most folks have been working um, remotely. And so that's going to be changing as people continue to get the vaccine and and we get past this this big hurdle here. And so, Jim, I wanted to start by asking you the question, is, is there a concern that there may be higher levels of, 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 of violence in the workplace, um, given the fact that people have been, you know, haven't been acclimated with interacting with each other in person over the last year. Well, actually, we are expecting some of that only because that was the MO before. Let's put it that way. Well, the more that you have people returning back to the work environment, and we've already seen that, in fact, uh, there's been some active shooter situations already uh, in some work environments. There was one that happened not too long ago at a health clinic where a 67-year-old man shot a nurse and wounded uh, three or four other people that worked at the facility. So already we are starting to see uh, these issues start to surface once again. Now, is there is there an official definition of what it, what domestic terrorism means? Um, because I know that there have been 
different definitions are thrown about. So then since this is your area of expertise, what, what is the official definition of what it is to be domestic terrorism? You know, that's, a, that's actually a good question, but I could tell you that the focus has always been on international terrorism, but it really domestic terrorism is the biggest issue. And, and there are some definitions, you know, uh, the domestic terrorism or homegrown terrorism, as some people call it, is a form of terrorism in which the victims, it's within a country, are targeted by a perpetrator with the same citizenship as the victims. So there really are many definitions of terrorism, and none of them are probably universally accepted, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the United States Department of State has defined terrorism way back as far as 2003 as premeditated, politically motivated violence perpetrated against non combatant targets by subnational groups or clandestine agents usually intended to influence an audience. Now that, 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 that is the technical name for it, um, mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest with you. But as we, as we understand it, you know, as lay people understand it, think about something that happened like on January 6th, that would be an example of domestic terrorism. Um, the work environment, we'll get into that. We'll have a, a different look than that one. Okay. Okay. Now, the the internet has been so great for so many things, but then there's always these unintended consequences as well. So, you know, we have more access to information, you know, people hopefully sometimes feel less alone where they're able to connect with folks that not necessarily be in their immediate vicinity and immediate area, but they're able to connect with them through the internet, you know, people all across the world. But but it, as well, it appears as though the power of the internet has also allowed for people um, with some of these radical types of viewpoints to be able to coalesce and, and get together as well. Has that been, is that something that came up in your research as, as it relates to this area, Jim? Yeah, you know, um, as you know, my background was in law enforcement. I was a certified terrorist investigator with the LA County Sheriff's Department. And one of the things that we learned, and we used to work on uh, it was the internet because people do have access to the internet and that really is problematic. So you're right when you say that it's a great tool for a lot of other reasons. The problem is, is that people become radicalized on the internet. They can turn around and look things up. Uh, they can see how to make different uh, devices. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, there's just so much with the internet that that's bad. Uh, from a law enforcement standpoint, we used to actually find, and if you listen to the news from time to time, you'll see where the FBI has actually stopped somebody um, from uh, committing some type of, uh, you know, high impact uh, event because we get on the internet looking for certain things. So the FBI has been successful in trying to head some of that off. So it's got a it's got a bad side to it, but law enforcement is actually using the internet to actually catch some of these people beforehand. No, absolutely. And, I, and I'm glad that they're there paying attention and, and in the dark web. I always hear about this mysterious dark web area where people are, um, you know, doing nefarious things and that there's actually law enforcement folks focused on on tracking the activity there um, to try to prevent some of these incidents and, and, and situations from happening. But then another, you know, question that normally comes up with folks is, you know, so how can we stop fanatics? How can we stop these fanatics from, you know, self-radicalizing or radicalizing through these groups on the Internet? Listen. Here's, here's the bottom line. We can't stop fanatics. Okay, we can't. We cannot stop them. But what has to happen is that the general public, including the work environment, you've got to be prepared. You've got to know things like when, when you're at work or away from work, you have to know your surroundings. And I'm not telling you to be paranoid. 
What I am saying is that we have to understand we're living in different times. When this, when society starts opening back up and people are now going to be out and about again, you've got to always know where you are, what's around, and again, not trying to make you paranoid. And anytime you have any doubts about things, if you see something suspicious, you really do need to call for assistance and let somebody know that something might be going on. Let me give you an example. Being in California, the San Bernardino shooting, what everybody knows about their husband and wife team that did all of those that, that shooting at that time. Well, their neighbors knew something was going on, but they were afraid to call the local authorities because they didn't want to be classified as racist or people of Middle Eastern descent. Well, they should have said something. And hopefully had they said something, then that situation could have been headed off. Now, I'll give you an example of preparation. And you'll hear me give you some safety tips throughout this uh, discussion that we're going to have today, Zeller. Um, and some of this will be found in my book. I have a book out called Domestic Terrorism Safety Tips. It's on Amazon by Jim Potts. And you'll see a lot of information that's in there regarding safety tips. I'll give you one example, evacuation plans. Evacuation plans need not only to, need to be in the work environment for sure, but let me give you an example how terrorists use evacuation plans to their, to their benefit. So you're staying at a hotel, and on the back of the hotel room door, there's an evacuation plan. What we have found is that somebody that wants to commit some kind of event, they will look at the same evacuation plan as the people staying in the hotel. That is what they'll do is set off a small fire in the trash can. The smoke goes up, sets off the, uh, sets off the alarm. Everybody looks at the evacuation plan, and the evacuation plan says, go to the southeast corner of the parking lot. What they're doing is drawing all of those people out of the hotel to a specific spot. And then when those people get to that specific spot, that's where they have their explosive device. The device goes off, and all of those people end up getting uh, hurt or killed. So there's an example where you turn around and say, okay, beforehand, let me give you the advice. If, the, if it goes off, I mean, if, you, if, if you're in that kind of situation, don't go to the southeast corner of the parking lot. The hotel wants you to go there because of the fact that they want to do a head count to make sure everybody get, get got out safe. Well, just call them back later and say, I got out, all right? right. So that's how you do it. Whew, so much to think about, you know, do you follow the evacuation plan? Don't you follow it? What do you do at the end? But I mean, it's just really a, a lot of what you said earlier, which is, you know, paying attention to your surroundings and being aware as it relates to those circumstances. But there's also the lone wolf concept. And, and I definitely want you to talk a little bit about that because there, it doesn't seem like there's much we can do as it relates to these lone wolves, or can we? You know, I'll tell you something interesting. During the 2016 presidential election, both candidates always talked about international terrorism, international terrorism, international terrorism. When the real focus is domestic terrorism, lone wolves. So your so your your, your comment or your question is a, is a is a really good one, because the lone wolves are the ones that we actually, from a law enforcement standpoint, that we have a problem with. We can't determine what makes somebody one day snap and decide that they're going to do something. Case in point, the uh, the shooter in Las Vegas. There's a situation where that's a lone wolf. He had never had any psychological disorders, and he had never been arrested. So here's a guy that just carefully plans. And by the way, I was debriefed after that uh, event by the FBI as well as the, uh, the, uh, the SWAT team leader. And to this day, we don't know why he did what he did. And that's part of the problem with lone wolves. 
a lot of times either they're killed by law enforcement or they kill themselves, and we never know what motivated them to do it. And his particular case, as an example, he had planned that for over a year. And you see what the end result ended up being, uh, which was which was which was devastating. And he he is somebody we would have classified as an active shooter, to give you that to give you an idea. Mm-hmm. Now, with the active shooter, again, it's funny that there's all these formal definitions in regards to it. So, is an active shooter situation only when like three people have been killed, wounded, or shot, or or, or how does that work? Active shooters are individuals with the event with the intent on killing on killing people as an example all right there's no doubt about it but when you hear about it on the news active shooters normally have where they have are shoot have shot and killed or wounded a certain number of people so 3 plus killed is normally an event or 3 plus wounded you know etc and and active shooter situations by the way are not the ones that are gang related all right, those are that's a whole different ball game from that standpoint. Now, I want you to think about something else. Active shooter incidents where we're all most at risk, believe it or not, businesses encompass almost half of the active shooter scenarios. And again, since things have started opening up, we've already seen already where there in fact are situations where businesses are being confronted once again with active shooters. Schools are, are about 25%. Um, houses of worship, we've seen it on the news. Uh, government properties, the percentages are, are low. Healthcare facilities, believe it or not, they're at the bottom because healthcare facilities have been dealing with these types of situations for decades, and they have very tight security measures in place because of the emergency room situations, et cetera. But businesses in general, those are the ones that have to be most cautious. They're wow. the ones most at risk. Wow, that's really concerning that roughly 50% of the active shooter incidents are in the workplace. And the, the other part that I want to make sure that people recognize and, 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 and remember is that, you know, just because an individual that is engaged in the active shooter conduct isn't an employee of the location doesn't necessarily mean that it's not business, that, that it didn't occur in a business. So somebody coming into a movie theater or going into a mall right? Just because they didn't work there doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a business situation and a business event because there's people that work there and their customers and guests and clients that are there too, right? Well, that would be correct. I mean, it can happen all across the board, quite frankly. Uh, and it's not limited to just employees or former employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how, how should somebody respond if there's an active shooter situation in their workplace? What, what are the tips you provide as it relates to that? Well, I, and, and, and thank you for that question. You know, I, it's like when you're on an airplane and they say that, okay, when they're giving the instructions and they say, okay, when the face mask drop down, put yours on, on first, and then you turn to the person next to you and assist them. What we try to get people to understand is that you got to determine the most reasonable way to protect your life first. Okay. If you do that, then your employees, as an example, in the work environment or customers, you know, they'll, they'll follow. So, so you gotta, you gotta look toward you first. I hate to say it, it's self-preservation, but I'm not going to tell somebody who might have, who might have, you know, feel that they want to be a hero in a circumstance to do whatever they have to do. You know, you have to take each circumstance to yourself, but our initial piece is you got to look to protect your life first, then your employees, if you're a manager or supervisor, customers, or a teacher, whatever the case may be. And then obviously call 911 when it's safe to do so. Yeah, and I think we're going to be talking about the 911 calls um, as well in a minute. 
Um, but then there's so I, I think there's there's different steps. So at first, if you can if you can run or evacuate, you should do that first. So what are what are in, what are insights that people need to be focused on if that's uh, the the first option that's available to them? You know, here's the problem: people panic. We try to get people not to panic. Panic creates injuries. As an example, the and it's tough to tell civilians, as an example, when the gunshots start going off, take a moment to compose yourself because people typically don't do that. But if you think about these things beforehand, so that if something happens and you practice, then you'll be ready. Let me give you an example. The Las Vegas shooting. I had people who I had trained months before the Las Vegas shooting that ended up being at that particular event. They called me afterwards and told me that that the safety tips that I gave them actually saved their lives. So I give safety tips about when you're at an open air event like that, like at a concert, et cetera. We don't have time today, but it's, it's in the book. So you have to have, when you go to those places like that or at, your, at work, you got to have an escape route and plan in mind. If something happens, you think about it beforehand so that if something happens, you're ready to react. It becomes automatic. Okay, so th that when that panic piece sets in, you're going to go in the direction that you have already mentally trained yourself to do it. And look, here's the other thing. People sometimes want to go back to get personal belongings. Like the ladies like to run back to try to get their purses. Guys with their man bags want to run back to get their man bags. We tell people, look, when it's time to get out, forget those kind of things. Your life comes first. Your life get comes Get out. First. Evacuate Absolutely. and run. And, you know, I, I love that you talk about the fact of having a plan and the importance of having a plan. I remember as a kid growing up in California, you know, we always had fire drills, right? Stop, drop and roll. You know what you're supposed to do if some for some reason you end up getting on, catching on fire. But as well, the um, the the earthquake drills, right? You know, you get under a chair, chair, uh, chair or table um, and all of that. So it, it makes it routine. So you know exactly what you should do under those circumstances. And one of the sad parts is I remember hearing reports that um, some of the young staffers that were on Capitol Hill um, on January the 6th knew exactly what to do. They did some of the exact same things that we're going to be going through in this in your in your session today is, you know, they, they learned that from the active shooter trainings that they had in their schools. And so it, it's, it's a sad reality in regards to where we're at today, that it was the young staffers that knew exactly what to do um, on Capitol Hill because of the, the trainings that they had received in, in the schools. Yeah, no, absolutely. It all comes out that way. And then, look, the other, the other side of the coin is you might not be able to get out. And let me just say something about running. The reason why I said you got to take a moment to compose yourself and not panic, just keep something in mind. You could be running toward the shooter. So you got to be careful right. with that. So, But if you can't get out, the next thing for you to do is to hide out. So you got to hide in an area out of view of the shooter. And, and so let's just take as an example you have an office, you're in your office, you hear something going down, you don't know what direction to go in. So what do you do? You turn off the lights in your office, you close the door, if your door locks, then lock it. Let me tell you something about active shooters. They do not shoot door locks off, they do not kick doors down because they've got a limited amount of time. Law enforcement right now takes 12 to 15 minutes to respond to an active shooter situation. So the shooter knows that they're operating on a limited amount of time. So if you're in an office situation, you can always go in to be in your office or any office, quite frankly, go in, lock the door, you know, turn off the lights and turn your cell phone off or put it on vibrate. Don't be in there yelling and screaming into your cell phone. My God, my God, he's going to shoot me because if they're passing by, they're going to hear you. 
The other thing I try to tell people is, look, if you can't lock the door, turn off the light. I want you to hide under the desk. But before you do that, I want you to leave the door semi-cracked. The reason why I say that is because a shooter is going to think that if, in fact, somebody was in there, the door would be locked as opposed to being open. So they will probably bypass it thinking nobody is there. Again, you make that determination for you what you think is best for you at that time. So you do what you can. Uh, sometimes people will block entries. Uh, they'll stack furniture against doors and things of that nature. You know, that that's an option. you got a group of people in there, uh, and certainly you can do that as well. No, these are definitely great and important tips for people to be able to think about and be aware of. So, the, so, so let's say you don't have the ability to be able to evacuate or run. Hiding out isn't something that's, that's an option that's available for you. What else is there? Fight. We, we, tell, we tell people all the time that they've got to fight for their lives. The, one of the things you might recall the, uh, the, uh, in, in Florida, the Pulse nightclub, yep. you had 300 people in there. It is still amazing to us how people really truly did not fight in terms of, hey, you pick this one shooter. You pick up tables, chairs, bottles. You throw things. You do whatever you have to do to fight for your life. That person is there to kill. So the gloves are off. Whatever you have to do in order to protect your life, that's what you need to do. And I tell people in that in, in the book I just told you about that in there, there's different things you could do. Uh, you know, ashtrays. And I know a lot of people don't have ashtrays at work, but heavy objects, a can of Coke, uh, anything that's heavy that you could just keep on your desk. Uh, believe it or not, umbrellas. You know, they have the points on the end, not the ones that just with the plastic tips. There's a lot of things that you can have at work that are perfectly legal to have that you can actually use to your benefit. You got to try to incapacitate the shooter as best you can. Any physical aggression, you throw items. Shooters don't expect people to go towards them. They expect people to run away from them. So, so it's almost like the guys on the plane that crashed in, 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 uh, in, in uh, Pennsylvania. What did yep. they do? They went towards the problem as opposed to away from the problem. Yes, ultimately they ended up crashing the plane, but the, but the, but the other people did not expect them to do that. That's the point. So you have to do the unexpected. Right, right. And then, um, so when it's safe, you know, the, having the ability to be able to call 911 again, if there's a shooter outside the door or you're in close vicinity, that's not what you want to do because it's going to be something that draws attention to you. I love the fact that you stress the importance of making sure to put your phone on silent and or vibrate, even sometimes vibrating. If it's really quiet, you're not going to be, the people will be able to hear that. So that's something that people should be focused on and aware of as well. But what type of information um, is helpful or would be helpful to the 911 operator once you're able to get on the phone with them? That's number one. And the other number two question I have is, do people have the ability to text 911 now? Because I think I remember hearing something about that as well. Yes, they have the ability to text as well. But one of the things is, is in a situation, the first thing that we want you to do, I know this is difficult because civilians are not used to being in those stressful situations. You got to take a moment to calm down when you're giving the information. If you're, if you're overly excited and you're screaming into the phone, it's going to take the dispatcher longer to get the information. And there's some basic information that the dispatcher is going to want to know. They're going to want to know, as an example, the location of the shooter, the number of shooters, physical description. The physical description doesn't have to be, well, he's got a scar over his left eye. He's six foot two. Uh-uh. Keep it simple. He's tall. He's short. He's white. He's black. He's thin. He's heavy. Keep it just that simple. You know, he's wearing a black jacket. He's got on a, you know, a black hat. Just keep it simple that way. 
then they're going to want to know what kind of weapons the person has. You know, we don't need to know, well, let's see, I think that's a 38 Smith and West. They're not going to want to know that. Big gun, little gun, keep it simple. If it's a big gun, we're going to know what it is. If it's a smaller gun, we're going to know it's a handgun. So keep it simple. And if you know the number of, of, uh, of, of potential victims or victims, you can say, hey, there's 20 people that work in there. Five of them are down. Um, whatever the case may be, just that kind of information would be extremely helpful. Well, yeah, that, that's information that's necessary for, um, you know, not only search and rescue folks, but, but, um, but the, um, the paramedics and everything and how many medics are going to be needed in regards to those that may be um, wounded or injured. So always, always important information. Um, yeah, to be honest with you, in terms of the paramedics, they're going to be coming from every direction anyway, because they're not going to know. Okay, so they're not going to worry about that number because a lot of these facilities now, uh, the law enforcement, they're working together with the hospitals. So automatically, once the word goes out that there's an active shooter, the hospitals and the clinics are already prepared to, to be receiving uh, victims. On notice. Everybody's on notice, I'm sure. Correct. Um, so once law enforcement arrives, I know that there are certain things that people may do, um, you know, without thinking that could put themselves at risk. So, so what are the, what, what are the, what's the insight and the tips that people need to be aware of once law enforcement actually arrives on scene? Here's what we want people to do. We want you actually to get down on your knees. We want you to raise both of your hands in the air as you're able to get down on your knees. If for some reason you're not physically able to do that, you're able to sit on the floor, uh, lay on the floor, whatever you have to do. The, the biggest thing is hands up and all 10 fingers spread apart. That, that's what we want you to do and it, because we want to make sure there's no weapons. The second thing we want you to do is don't yell and scream at us when we come in. The reason for that is, is that we have our earpieces on and the other law enforcement personnel may be telling us that the shooter's been subdued, the shooter's heading back in your direction. So we need to be able to hear that. The other thing is don't grab us. Don't grab on us. The other thing is we don't want you, once you're down, don't panic and jump up and run out. If you do that and we catch that glimpse out of the corner of our eye, we may flash in that direction. And we don't want to end up, you know, shooting somebody by accident when they are, in fact, a uh, an innocent person. And the other thing is we don't want you when we when we give you the instructions to leave, we want you to leave. Don't stop and ask us any questions. Follow the directions to get out. Yeah. So the importance there is I think what you're focusing on, too, is that. Um, you know, the active shooter can try to blend in with the crowd and evacuate with everybody else. And so, um, you know, the officers arriving on scene don't know who the shooter is, and they're trying to figure that out just like everybody else. And so it's, it's providing them with the opportunity to know that it's not you, right? Correct. With, with workplace terrorism and, and, and domestic violence, um, I mean, who, who are the folks that tend to engage in this type of conduct? I know that we talked about the lone wolves and stuff, but but who else tend to be the individuals that are involved in this type of this type of violence in the workplace? The, okay, what we're talking about now with an active shooter in the workplace, it's normally a disgruntled current or former employee, a disgruntled customer, domestic violence situations that spill over into the work environment. And I tell people during my active shooter training, whatever you do, you know, as an individual, don't give out advice to a, to a domestic violence victim. You know, you ought to leave him. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. Because I'm going to tell you something. Those victims will quite often, they will take your name home on their lips 
and tell the person, you know what? Jim told me that I should leave you. And now that person feels that you are now interfering in their relationship and they'll come up to the work environment looking for you and also looking for the victim. And that has happened so many times. So don't give out personal advice. You can be compassionate. You can, you can, you can, you can listen. Um, and they should be referred to the professionals as opposed to giving out the advice. Don't give out the advice, in my opinion, in domestic violence situation. And, and disgruntled customers, you have to watch them. They will make threats and they will actually come back um, as well. They had one situation where a woman uh, that was working, uh, that, that uh, got upset at the cell phone company. And, um, you know, because when you're, when you're, uh, warranty, I mean, not your warranty, when, when it expires in terms of the plan that you have with the uh, cell phone company mm -hmm. and you come back and you say, okay, I'm here to get my free phone. The year is up. You know, I've been loyal. And had a situation where they told her, no, um, sorry. Um, that wasn't what it was supposed to be. She gets upset. She goes into the parking lot. She gets in her SUV and she drives through the front window of the, of the cell phone company. The headline in the newspaper the next day said, can you hear me now? <laughs> wow. Wow. But so you don't know. I mean, customers are customers and they will get upset. True, true. You know, I can see the domestic violence you know, recommendation being a tough one for people because when folks are in, you know, in domestic violence type situations, at least with the studies that I've read and shown and, and folks that I know that work in the area, you know, it takes a lot for somebody to finally leave, you know, their partner if they're in those types of situations. And normally it takes, you know, a, long, a, a lot of time, effort and energy of, of, of people supporting them and encouraging them to leave. So I can see that being a challenge for folks to, to, to not engage in, especially since, you know, you become friends with the people that you work with. And so, you know, you, you, you truly care about them and want the best for them. And so I can see that one likely being, being a challenge for folks. But I, I, I can I can ring off a bunch of the situations off of my head in regards to situations where, you know, the 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 significant other came to work, not only looking for that employee, but also looking for their friend um, that was there and trying to advocate for them to leave that situation. So um, that's one that we're all going to have to wrestle with if, if, the, if it's a situation that we end up coming up with. And let's be clear, we, we were talking about generally speaking about males with active shooter situations. But on my radio show, which is every Sunday at three o'clock on LA talk radio, I have actually this, this and that's LA uh, talk radio, that specific time for that three o'clock on Sundays. But I've actually talked on there about the fact that domestic violence, as an example, or active shooter situations, primarily active shooters are males, but they have been some female uh, active shooters. And with the domestic violence, understand that there are men who also become victims of, uh, of uh, domestic violence as well. So it's really both, although the percentages obviously are very low in terms of the males. Now, right. I will give you some additional statistics where approximately 2 million workers annually are the victims of some form of workplace violence. And homicide is the leading cause of death for women in the workplace, and a lot of people don't realize that. But those are some serious numbers. Wow. For men, it's the second leading cause of death for men. Number one uh, for, for men is actually automobile accidents. Yeah. So, and and then seven hundred, roughly seven hundred um, people are murdered in the workplace um, on an annual basis. Yeah, and those numbers are for see for last year. A lot of these numbers are probably going to be lower, obviously, because of the situation with the pandemic. A lot of people are working from home. Uh, a lot of people were laid off. So these numbers for twenty twenty, when they finally come in, are going to be probably extremely low right. uh, because of the circumstance. And I would think that for the most part, this year. 
it's probably going to be similar to being to being low again. But as things really start to open up, I'm sure the numbers will start going back up. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I think you were talking about so workplace homicides. You know what? What roughly almost eighty percent, um, um, eighty percent of shootings in the workplace result in homicides. Yeah, because of the, it's the private sector. You don't have to necessarily worry about like the government buildings and things of that nature. Those are pretty tight when you really when it really all comes down to it. But the private sector is where you're going to see the majority of these homicides. And sadly, it's because a lot of employers don't think this can ever happen to me. Okay, mm -hmm. this can never happen here. But that's not true. It can't happen. Right. And they got to be prepared. <clears throat> No, I value that you brought up the fact that with with you know that more often than not it's men that are engaging in this type of conduct, but there are situations and relationships where the women are are the ones that are engaging in domestic abuse with their with their with their male partners, but then also LGBT relationships, right? And so I know that there are um, statutes around the country that have been um, reframed and repackaged so that it's um, that it's not written in a way that it that the woman is always the victim, and so they're making it more gender neutral from that perspective so that there's access. Um, to to either these programs or or um, or legal remedies available for folks, regardless of of the partner that they have in their in their relationship. Well, let's just make it clear that is what happened since the O.J. Simpson situation. Are now law enforcement has taken a different view on domestic violence because what happens is now when law enforcement goes into a home, if that person even has a scratch on them, has some kind of injury, the police officers then become the uh, moving party, so to speak, as opposed to the victim. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes, Zella, the victims, they don't want, at some point, they don't want to pursue it. Right. Because uh, they love the person or they don't want any future issues. So so now a lot of times those statutes have been changed where law enforcement now become the reporting party so that these people can be prosecuted. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's needed, and hopefully that's resulting in a in a in a in a drastic change as it relates to the prosecution of individuals engaged in this type of conduct. But those would be statistics and data, I'm sure that you've tracked down and looked at on your end. So, are, are there tips in regards to preventing workplace violence? I mean, what are some of the things that we can do, or employers can do, especially those that are listening, uh, to prevent workplace violence? Well, first of all, it's not about it's not about getting ready; it's about being ready, and I mean that sincerely. You could talk about the fact, well, we'll get ready to do that. No, you got to do it, okay? It's about being ready, not about getting ready. So there's some steps that you can take. So we always in our trainings talk about prevention in five steps as an example. So when you're in the hiring process, you need to screen your applicants. You need to have an anti-violence policy in place. You should have a crisis management team that consists not only of management people, but also with the employees. So everybody uh, shares in the safety of the work environment. And I'm not talking about like a safety committee that you use for safety, like with the with OSHA. I'm mm -hmm. talking about a different one, a crisis team. And then most importantly, you need to train frontline supervisors uh, and greeters. As an example, in our active shooter training, we train all of the employees, managers as well, and supervisors. Why? Because it is a joint effort for everybody to be on the lookout for potential issues. And and there's some warning signs, I think, that you normally give out, like what, eight warning signs you normally give to employers to, to, to be on the lookout for in regards to somebody who may end up engaging in violent behavior at work? Oh, yeah. And these are pretty standard that's out there with law enforcement. 
we're always on the lookout for employees who have fascinations with weapons. I'm not talking about your casual hunter, things of that nature. I'm talking about the guy that's talking about, you know, oh, hey, have you heard, you know, about the latest AR that's out? And, hey, the gun show's coming in town. And they're always talking about building things off the Internet or getting things off the Internet. They've got a true fascination with weapons. The person that's always talking like that, that's one of the people you need to be aware of. Substance abuse is another issue uh, that people, uh, law enforcement will associate with this kind of violent behavior. Uh, people that are, that, are, that are depressed, as an example, uh, in law enforcement, we will tell you that, especially around the holidays, when people don't have families and things, that they mm -hmm. end up getting depressed. Um, so the majority of the suicides that we see are always around, like the Christmas holidays, as an example. The other thing is, is that you got to watch out for employees who have some kind of violent history. Um, you know, they've done something at work uh, and they get a pass, you know, because of the fact that they're the number one salesperson, as an example, and they engage in this behavior and the employer doesn't let them go because they're their number one salesperson, as an example. You got to keep in mind with this kind of with these kind of policies, you got to be fair, firm and consistent. Yeah, and I know most employers have these zero tolerance policies as it relates to discrimination or harassment. And again, most of them do have a zero tolerance policy as it relates to violence in the workplace. But as you indicated, and I know that we've both done our share of workplace investigations uh, in, our, in our respective businesses where, you know, the employer doesn't want to hold a particular individual accountable because they're making them a bunch of money. And that's where there ends up becoming issues, especially when you're dealing with violence in the workplace as well. So it does need to be that zero tolerance policy. Otherwise, there's exposure like negligent retention and negligent hiring and all of these other, you know, legal avenues that employees would be able to take above and beyond a workers' compensation type situation, where you know there's 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 a much more significant you know dollar figure available as it relates to legal exposure, right? Well, that is correct. You know, uh, the law has required employers since 1994 to have uh, a workplace violence safety program in place. It's called the Workplace Violence Safety Act of 1994. And the employers are required to take reasonable steps to address, you know, credible threats of workplace violence. So by law, they need to have a workplace security plan in place. And we help them to write those as well. Well, has it been your experience that most employers have these, these, uh, these plans in place? Unfortunately, most employers we've dealt with, and we've trained over 30,000 employees, hundreds of businesses, and 99.9% and, and .9 of them don't even know about that requirement to have that. They just focus on the regular safety plan that has to do with OSHA as well as workers' comp. So there has to be, they need to have a business game plan in, in effect. So a site assessment, you know, which is kind of what we do, but you know, to know where are the uh, safe rooms in, in your facility. You got to have a workplace security plan. Managers and employees have to be trained and there's got to be written procedures by department for people to follow because every department could be set up differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that, in, that, that individual employees can get restraining orders against individuals if they feel that there's some, some you know, physical threat against them as individuals. Has the law changed as it relates to whether businesses are allowed to get restraining orders against individuals as well? It has changed. California is one example. California is now permitting employers to get restraining orders against the uh, the person that's committing the domestic violence because because of the fact that it's spilling over into the work environment and the employers want to be able to protect the not only the victim but the other people right. uh, that are at work. They're permitting employers now to be able to do that. 
What people don't realize is the financial impact of all of this violence creates not only a morale issue, but it financially impacts businesses as well. The National Institute uh, for Occupational Health has projected that it costs $120 billion a year with this issue about violence in the workplace. The reason for that is, is because of business closures, you know, when after an event happens, there's missed work days, uh, production is down, workers' compensation, and legal fees. So there's a lot of money associated with these issues as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge figure, $120 million per year. And then I think that comes down to that, that, that uh, in that same um, reporting, they talk about that it's roughly uh, $850,000 per homicide cost per incident, right? Oh, yeah. Big yep. dollar figures, big dollar figures associated with this. So, so you know, as as we're wrapping it up, um, I want to make sure that that we have an opportunity to uh, go over some of the the final reminders that you have. I know that people love checklists. Uh, I know that I love checklists. So, if you haven't had your pen out yet, make sure you get your pen out so you can get this checklist here that Jim's about to give you as well in regards to what to do if violence erupts in the workplace. Yeah, you got to remove your staff and customers from the harm. That's number one. You got to contact law enforcement. Is number two. You should already have arranged for emergency medical care. Know where your emergency medical facilities are and have that on speed dial, basically, so that you can make those calls. After it's all over, schedule debriefings, okay? Do the debriefings to find out exactly what happens. Employees psychologically may be impacted, so you're going to have to refer them to your EAP, um, which is the Employee Assistance Program through your health uh, care provider and always renew your commitment to security and have a spokesperson for the media so that the media is getting the accurate information as opposed to 20 different people trying to tell the media exactly what happened. And we know the media will be there to try to get as much information as they can. And I know that I've, you know, um, assisted the development of many handbooks um, through my business. And I know you, you have as well. And, and a lot of times, you know, we, we incorporate and include uh, policies as it relates to who is allowed to speak to the media and the likes. So that's always important to make sure that that's a policy that's there um, and that employees are aware of that policy as well. Most employees aren't reading the handbook from cover to cover, unfortunately. So it's a, it's a, it's incumbent upon the employer uh, to make sure that they're having that discussion, that dialogue with their employees. Um, so Jim, yes, let's make sure that we, that we re recap in regards to how folks can get in contact with you. I know you have the radio show, you have the book, you have your Twitter, there's, and then there's the, the, the active shooter uh, prevention training that you do. So let's, let's make sure that we, we highlight that as well as we wrap it up. Yeah, they can reach, they can find me on LA Talk Radio, okay, which is uh, streaming on the internet, uh, latalkradio.com, uh, listen up with Jim Potts, um, every Sunday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, they can also uh, become part of my Twitter followers uh, at Jim Potts Author as well. And they can also reach me at Potts and Associates in Pasadena, California, uh, that they can contact me uh, that way as well, if anybody is interested. And based on your employment law work, you have a blog that you've been doing for years and years and years with tons of archived information there for people to be able to read up as well. And so I encourage folks to check that out. Grab a copy of the book. I know the book is amazing because I have my own copy, signed copy from you. And there's even a pocket guide that you can actually put in your purse or your wallet so you have this information readily at hand for you if there's an active shooter situation that happens either in your workplace or somewhere where you are out in, in public. Um, unfortunately, this has been um, um, a growing situations that have been part of our, our American lives. Hopefully, we'll be able to find a way to be able to dial it back and curb these types of things back. But it's important and incumbent upon all of us 
to make sure that we stay vigilant um, and aware and be safe in regards to what's going on. So Jim, I wanted to make sure that I provided you uh, with the last word as we as we round it out here uh, with the Formal Workplace Inclusion Podcast. Well, what we want you to understand is that we want you to be aware we want you to be vigilant and we want you to be safe. Check out my book on Amazon, Domestic Tourism Safety Tips by Jim Potts. And thank you very much for having me, Zaylor. Thank you. And thanks to Forma Workplace Inclusion. Thank you so much, Zaylor and Jim, for that wonderful podcast. Thank you to our listeners for joining and a special thank you to our sponsor, Best Buy. You can learn more by emailing Zaylor or Jim at Zaylor at stoutlaw.com and Jim Potts at potsandassociates.com. New episodes of the Forum podcast are available at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. You can also find podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates in the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.